This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Narration by Jordan Wilson. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks to download this book in PDF format. Conspiracy in Philadelphia, Origins of the United States Constitution by Dr. Gary North. Publisher, Dominion Educational Ministries, Harrisonburg, Virginia. This book is dedicated to the members, living and dead, of Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, who for over two centuries have smelled a rat in Philadelphia. Chapter 4. From Coup to Revolution. Quote by James Madison, 1787. The conduct of every popular assembly acting on oath, the strongest of religious ties, proves that individuals join without remorse in acts against which their consciences would revolt if proposed to them under like sanction separately in their closets. When indeed religion is kindled into enthusiasm, its force, like that of other passions, is increased by the sympathy of a multitude. But enthusiasm is only a temporary state of religion, and while it lasts, will hardly be seen with pleasure at the helm of government. Besides, as, a, as religion in its coolest state is not infallible, it may become a motive to oppression as well as a restraint from injustice. End quote. At age 36, James Madison was an angry young man in the spring of 1787. He had been angry for a long time. Everything he saw in the Articles of Confederation, in the state legislatures, in the economy made him angry. He was determined that there would be that there would soon be a change. This change would have to be both political and national. He sat down his private thoughts in the weeks before the great convention that he had organized, a convention that he had begun planning at the meeting at Mount Vernon two years earlier. He was also determined to achieve his long-term goal of separating Christianity from civil government, not just separating church from state, but Christianity from civil government. He knew what he had to be what had to be done in order to accomplish this goal, the severing of the binding power of Trinitarian religious oaths that were required of state officers in several states. Those oaths had to be circumvented. Yet most of the members of Congress who had authorized the convention had taken such oaths. Thus, Congress itself had to be circumvented and then overthrown. It was a tribute to Madison's political genius that he came up with a five-point tactical solution, tactics that matched the five-point model of covenantalism point for point. First, the convention would be authorized by a naive and trusting Congress to make minor adjustments in the Articles. The old national government had been the creation of the states. The new one would be the creation of the people. Second, under cover of an implicit oath-bound secrecy, this convention would, from its opening day, violate the instructions of the superior legislative agency, Congress, and propose the abolition of the Articles. This would break the hierarchical chain of command. This convention replaced Congress as the voice of authority. It became the representative of the people. This is why it was called a convention. Third, the nation's legal order would be reconstituted, including the prohibition of religious test oaths at the federal level. New judicial boundaries assessing relative state and national power would be created. New internal judicial boundaries, federalism, would be created for the national government, most notably a nationally elected executive, which the Articles had lacked. Fourth, the convention would appeal to a new sanctioning agency, the people. The will of the people would be voiced judicially in state-ratified conventions that Madison expected the nationalists, a political faction, to dominate. Fifth, the ratifying conventions would authorize a new covenant. What was, ha what was to have been an act of national covenant renewal, re revision of the articles, would become the cutting of a new cat national covenant. Subsequent chart changes, renewals, would be, by, would be by amendment by Congress and voting by state legislatures. But the door was left open for another convention, called by the state legislatures or by Congress, with subsequent ratification by either state legislatures or by state conventions, Article 5.
the meaning of convention. Edmund Morgan has seen the the revolutionary implications of calling the Constitutional Convention a convention. This word had been invoked during the two previous transfers of executive sovereignty in English history. These two conventions marked temporary replacements of Parliament in order to award new kings their lawful executive authority. Charles II in 1660 and William III in 1689. Writing of these two English precedents, he observes, quote, but the idea of an elected convention that would express enduring popular will and fundamental constitutions superior to government was a viable way of making popular creation and limitation of government believable. It was fictional, for it ascribed to one set of elected representatives meeting in convention a more popular character and consequently a greater authority than every subsequent set of representatives meeting as the legislature but it was not too fictional to be believed and not so literal as to endanger the effectiveness of government it never came into use in england but it was reinvented but it never came into use in england but it was reinvented in the american revolution End quote. the term convention was also used by Re- by the revolutionaries in france in september of 1792 to launch the radical phase of the revolution rr R. palmer writes quote, it was called a convention from the precedent of constitutional conventions in the united states End quote. Under this convention, four months later, Louis, Louis the Fourteenth was beheaded. This was surely a transfer of executive power. It led to the rise of a new executive, Robespierre. The convention then wrote a new constitution, later called the Stillborn Constitution of 1793. The centralization of power in Paris escalated under this new constitution. To accomplish this, the Jacobins imitated Madison's tactic. They had the constitution ratified by plebiscite. Madison planned an initial coup, the immediate scrapping of the articles, to be followed by a plebiscite. The plebiscite, as the voice of the people, would consolidate and sanction the coup. Thus, a bloodless revolution could be achieved, a revolution in national sovereignty testified to by a change in judicial oaths. Had there been been no alteration of the oath structure, there would have been no revolution. Deliberately Creating Religious Factions It is well known that Madison's greatest fear was his fear of the triumph of any particular political faction. Federalist 10 is devoted to this theme. What Madison wanted was political neutrality, a world of politically impotent factions only as strong as necessary to cancel each other out. In the 1787 Vices essay, he inserted this conclusion immediately following the paragraph on state religious oaths. Quote, The great desideratum in government is such a modification of the sovereignty as will render it sufficiently neutral between the different interests and factions to control one part of society from invading the rights of another, and at the same time sufficiently controlled itself from setting up an interest adverse to that of the whole society, end quote. This was his argument against Montesquieu, who had argued that republics can only function in small nations. On the contrary, argued Madison in Federalist 10, republics can insulate themselves best from the effects of faction by becoming so large that the factions offset themselves. To control the power of any given faction, we must create lots of factions. That he was arguing against Montesquieu in Federalist 10 is generally recognized by historians of the Federalist Papers. What has not been emphasized sufficiently by scholars is the denominational context of Madison's concerns about faction. It was religious faction that was on his mind from the beginning, just as it had been on the minds of the English Whigs for a century. 
Like the 18th century Whig's anti-clerical dissent against the Tory-controlled Anglican Church and its political alliance with the Crown, so Madison hoped from the outbreak of the Revolution to find some way to break up state-established churches. His tactic was to create mutually offsetting denominational factions. He wanted the discontinuity of sects to substitute for the continuity of state-supported churches. He said this explicitly in Federalist 51, quote, In a free government, this security for civil rights must be the same as for religious rights. It consists in one of the, in, in the one case in the multiplicity of interests and in the other in the multiplicity of sects. The degree of security in both cases will depend on the number of interests and sects, and this may be presumed to depend on the extent of, a, of country and number of people comprehended under the same government. End quote. Epstein is correct. He said, quote, It is clear from Madison's previous versions of Federalist Ten's arguments that religious factions were his primary concern among opinionated parties. End quote. Epstein, unfortunately, did not follow through on this cogent observation. Madison's Fear of Trinitarian Society Madison expressed his concern over consolidated churches in a letter to William Bradford of Philadelphia in 1774. If the, quote, if the Church of England had been the, had been the established and general religion in all the northern colonies as it had been among us here, and uninterrupted tranquility had prevailed throughout the continent, it is clear to me that slavery and subjection might and would have been gradually insinuated among us. Union of religious sentiments begets a surprising confidence, and ecclesiastical establishments tend to great ignorance and corruption, all of which facilitate the execution of mischievous projects. But away with politics. End quote. Away with politics? It is clear that politics was the, co- was the context of his discussion of the churches. Madison was judicially unconcerned about religion as such. He was very concerned about politics. In this sense, he was a consistent secular humanist and has been correctly identified as such. He railed against the, quote, pride, ignorance, and knavery among the priesthood and vice and wickedness among the laity. He then said, I want again to breathe your free air. In these sentiments, he revealed himself as a true independent Whig dissenter. Several states had created established churches. Pennsylvania was an exception. In 1774, free air. Within any one state, a single denomination could gain special powers or favors. Rather than merely oppose a compulsory state financing of churches as he did in 1779 and 1785, 1779 and 1785, a worthy and legitimate political goal, biblically speaking, in order to reduce the economic dependence of the church on the state, Madison wanted to remove the civil government all sources of political independence on Christianity. In his Memorial and Remonstrance of 1785, written against the move of Governor Patrick Henry and the legislature to provide limited state aid to churches, not to any one church, he wrote, quote, During almost 15 centuries has the legal establishment of Christianity been on trial. What have been its fruits? More or less, in all places, pride and indolence in the clergy, ignorance and servility in the laity, in both superstition, bigotry, and persecution. End quote. He continued in this vein, quote, What influence, in fact, have ecclesiastical establishments had on, civil, had on civil society? In some instances, they have been seen to erect a spiritual tyranny on the ruins of civil authority. In many instances, they have been seen upholding the thrones of political tyranny. In no instance have they been seen the guardians of the liberties of the people. Rulers who wish to subvert the public liberty may have found an established clergy convenient auxiliaries. A just government instituted to secure and perpetuate it needs them not. He invoked the biblical principle 
principle of sanctuary or asylum, but dressed it in a new secular garb. Quote, because the proposed establishment is a departure from the generous that generous policy, which are offering an asylum to the persecuted and oppressed of every nation and religion, promised a luster to our country and an ascension to the number of its citizens. End quote. He equated asylum with a religiously neutral state, ignoring the truth of the Old Testament's example. It is only when a civil government is explicitly God-honoring, and when it screens those from public office who refuse to place themselves under God's covenant oaths as his servants, that the sanctuary can be maintained. Nature's God or Nature is God Madison called all state-established religion an inquisition in principle. He ended his plea with a prayer to the officially nonspecific supreme lawgiver of the universe. He made it clear who this lawgiver is, nature itself. Quote, because, finally, the equal right of every citizen to the free exercise of his religion according to the dictates of conscience is held by the same tenure with all our other rights, if we recur to its origin, it is equally the gift of nature. End quote. A year and a half before the Constitutional Convention, Madison and Jefferson combined forces to get passed into law the now famous Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom. The act began with a summary of late 18th century Arminian and deistic theology, quote, whereas Almighty God hath created the mind free, so that all attempts to influence it by temporal punishments or burdens, or by civil incapacitations, tend only to beget habits of hypocrisy and meanness, and are a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion. End quote. This preamble is the longest sentence I have ever seen in a, in a piece of legislation, approximately 600 words without a period. It represents the literary triumph of the semicolon. It includes this, this openly Newtonian sentiment regarding civil liberties, quote, Our civil rights have no dependence on our religious opinions any more than our opinions in physics or geometry, end quote. The act ends with a statement that those passing it into civil law recognized that the legislature has no power to bind future legislators, so that no piece of legislation is irrevocable. Nevertheless, they appeal to permanent natural rights. Quote, the rights hereby asserted are of the natural rights of mankind, and that if any shall act, if any act shall hereafter be passed to repeal the present or to narrow its operation, such act will be an infringement of natural right. End quote. A year and a half later, the framers established this provision for the national government. This was the capstone of Madison's 15-year war against religious test oaths. Political Unitarianism, Rousseau with Factions By centralizing judicial power under a national government that prohibited the use of religious oaths as a test for holding nation national office, Madison correctly believed that this would undermine the, the ability of any single denomination to influence local policy permanently in any question under the national government's ultimate jurisdiction. The doctrine of judicial review, first consistently promoted in the Federalist, coupled with the abolition of religious test oaths, guaranteed the long-term eradication of the pre-revolutionary war's concept of oath-created civil covenants under God. One judicial body, the Supreme Court, could override the oath-bound factionalism of the various state courts. As it had turned out, the Supreme Court can also overturn the decisions of state legislatures and even the federal legislature, though this was not fully understood by the authors of The Federalist. Understand what Madison assumed throughout religious factions, indeed all factions, are an essentially surface phenomenon. They disturb an underlying national unity. In other words, there is an inherent unity in man's political affairs apart from factions. All that this 
All that is needed to allow this underlying political unity to flourish is to expand the geographical boundaries of government in order to absorb, and therefore offset, more and more factions. Implicitly, this is done. This is a one-world impulse. Such an outlook regarding factions makes Madison an implicit follower of Rousseau. It is this assumption of a unitary reality behind factions that undergirds Rousseau's theory of the general will. I am not arguing that Madison was a strict follower of Rousseau. Rousseau thought of all life thought of all of life as political. Intermediary institutions are to have no influence in society at all because all of life is political. Man is a citizen and only a citizen. Madison was not politicized to this extent, but the two men were agreed in those cases where the actual exercise of political power was concerned. Rousseau sought the abolition of all institutional barriers to the expression of the general will. Madison wanted, to, wanted total decentralization for the factions and national centralization in a large nation. Rousseau wanted no factions. Madison wanted the multiplication and political trivialization of factions. The goal in each case was the same, the unification of national policy apart from any meaningful special interest group pressures. By creating a national government that could act judicially directly on its citizens, the Constitution achieved this Rousseauvian goal. In Federalist 51, Madison described his goal for the creation of this new political order, one which would protect the rights of minorities and also create ethically just government decisions. This key is the diffusion of interests. Quote, Different interests necessarily exist in different classes of citizens. If a majority be united by a common interests, interest, the right of the minority will be insecure. There are but two methods of providing against this evil. The one by creating a will in the community independent of the majority, that is, of the society itself. The other by comprehending in the society so many separate descriptions of citizens as will render an unjust combination of a majority of the whole very improbable, if not impractical. End quote. The first approach is monarchy. The second, the second is the U.S. Constitution. His assumption was that there is justice available and politicians can discover it. They need only to escape the noise of the competing factions. This enables politicians to render just decisions to escape the tyranny of the majority by finding out what the just interests of society are. This was Rousseau's goal, too. The technique is different, not the suppression of interests, but the privatizing of them, making them politically irrelevant. Rousseau's goal was the politicization of private interests, but both men believe that there is justice attainable through the overcoming of factions. In this sense, Madison was as utopian and as messianic as Rousseau was. The difference lies in his approach. He was a man of the Scottish Enlightenment, a man in revolt against Presbyterianism. Rousseau was a man in revolt against political authoritarianism and the Roman Catholic hierarchy. Each man's system resembled his enemy's system. Madison wanted to overcome Presbyterianism by making the world socially congregational and national politics neutral. Rousseau wanted to overcome Roman Catholicism by making the world socially unitarian and all politics state salvational. Ancient Rome sought Madison's political goal by inviting all conquered cities of the empire to send their local gods into the pantheon. Madison told their conquered cities of the republic to keep their gods home and multiply them. He then emptied the pantheon. This confidence in what should be described as a Unitarian political settlement was based on some version of Newtonian or Ciceronian natural law. It was also the worldview of Freemasonry. 
Freemasons believe that the religious factions or traditions, creeds, liturgies, and unique institutional histories are peripheral to the true spiritual unity of the brotherhood under the supreme architect. The Constitution has not yet been ratified when the Anti-Federalists began organizing to capture Congress under the new Constitution. Political factions and parties had already sprung up during the Revolutionary War era. They developed even further during the Confederation period. They became entrenched after 1788. Madison's dream was shattered before sunrise. There is universal agreement among historians. This Madison, Madisonian faith in a world devoid of political influential factions was utopian in 1788, just as it would be utopian today. What few of them are willing to say, forthrightly, is that the very presence of such a faith marks Madison as the most rationalistic of political philosophers. Madison and his peers were totally naive on this point. History agree. Historians agree. But the historians tend to ignore the origins of his utopian faith. It just somehow was universal among the nationalists. They do not pursue the obvious, the intellectual ideal of a political world of Newtonian mechanism and the rhetoric of Cicero. Ciceronian natural law had fused with the Masonic ideal of a creed overcoming brotherhood to produce a political world without men's passions and interests. It, it was a stillborn ideal by 1788. Shopkeeper's Millennium. By 1787, the framers had begun to think commercially. Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, 1776, had been circulating widely within educated Republican circles. The defenders of Republican liberties had begun to recognize that the old Roman Republican virtues, while laudable, were untrustworthy for building a modern nation or maintaining an old one successfully. What was needed, they increasingly concluded, was something like Adam Smith's promised shopkeeper's, shopkeeper's millennium. Commerce would bind men together in a common effort. Men, in their private efforts, would produce a good society. There was a fundamental difference between the framers' understanding of their self-appointed task and the Scottish Enlightenment's rationalist vision of the competitive market order. Adam Ferguson's observation summarized the view of the social framework of the Scots. Quote, Nations stumble upon establishments which are indeed the result of human action, but not the execution of any human design. End quote. This was a self-consciously evolutionary worldview. The framers, in sharp contrast, were motivated by the vision of the great architect. They believed that they could sit down together and write an, write an historically unique document that would accomplish for the political order what Smith's minimal legislation free market promised to accomplish, greater free freedom for individuals, greater wealth for nations. Ferguson, as an ordained Presbyterian minister, at least had a liberal Presbyterian view of God to undergird his social evolutionism. Smith had a more deistic view of God as the foundation of morality. He spoke of the all-seeing judge of the world, whose eye can never be deceived and whose judgments can never be perverted. He believed in final judgment, including negative sanctions. He did not appeal to religion as an instrumental value for civic religion. The framers were much less clear about supernatural supports, except insofar as widespread belief in such a god would strengthen social order. With their faith in God as the cosmic architect of the world, by tying the operations of a competitive market order to God's ultimate design, the Scottish rationalists could offer the suggestion that men can increase their wealth by trimming away most legislation. 
the world works better when politicians remove themselves from the market. The designing schemes of politicians are the source of the poverty of nations. While Jefferson may have believed in such an economic world, Hamilton surely did not. It took a leap of faith to believe that a convention could revolutionize civil government by designing a totally new experiment in national government without falling into the trap that the Scots said politicians always fall into, not seeing the long-term consequences of their actions. The Scots believed in a grand architect, but they were of the opinion that a wise politician will leave God's handiwork alone. The framers had a different opinion, at least regarding civil government. In modern times, the collapse of faith in any underlying unity, apart from either coalitions or the outright abolition of rival factions, has destroyed the Madisonian paradigm. Unitarianism has been replaced by philosophical relativism and the consequent cacophony of single-issue politics. The physical world of Newton had been replaced by the world of Heisenberg, or at least at the subatomic level. The social world of Newtonianism had been replaced by theories of pluralism. The individual gods of the pluralist universe are unwilling to take no for an answer. Anarchy, that great fear of the framers, has once again raised its many heads. The framers had relied on a Trinitarian social order to preserve the Unitarian civil settlement. The result has been a war between anarchy's polytheism and tyranny's monotheism. To control the central government is to control access to the voice of authority. The new rule of democracy exhibited best in polytheistic tribal Africa is simple. One man, one vote, once. A coup. The idea that the, converse, that the convention was a coup is not new. It had its origins in the pamphlets of the anti-federalists who opposed the Constitution. It became popular again in the years immediately preceding World War I, when Charles A. Beard published his famous economic interpretation of the Constitution in 1913. The coup thesis was modified by General Jensen, Merrill Jensen, in 1940, the Articles of Confederation, and again in 1950 when he published The New Nation. Jensen, unlike Beard, believed that the period of the Articles was not really that critical a period, that the basic economy and political structure of the nation were sound. I'm not entirely persuaded by this. There were tariffs between states, although the tariff wars had begun to fade by 1787. There was no executive in charge of the armed forces. There was no direct taxation power at the national level. But on the whole, Jensen's assessment of the political division is accurate. Quote, Politically, the dominating fact of the Confederation period was the struggle between two groups of leaders to shape the character of the states and judicial branches subservient to them. The members of the colonial aristocracy who became the patriots and new men who gained economic power during the revolution deplored this fact, but they were unable to alter the state constitutions during the 1780s. Meanwhile, they tried persistently to strengthen the central government. These men were the nationalists of the 1780s. On the other hand, the men who were the true Federalists believed that the greatest gain of the revolution was the independence of the several states and the creation of a central government subservient to them. The leaders of this group, from the Declaration of Independence to the Convention of 1787, were Samuel Adams, Patrick Henry, Richard Henry Lee, George Clinton, James Warren, Samuel Bryan, George Bryan, Elbridge Gerry, George Mason, and a host of less well-known but no less important men in each of the states. Most of these men believed, as a result of their experience with Great Britain before 1776 and of their reading of history, that the states could be best governed without the intervention of a powerful central government. The Nationalists Who were the Nationalists? Robert Morris, Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, James Wilson, James Madison, and John Jay. Of them, Jensen wrote, 
Most of these men were by temperament or economic interest believers in executive and judicial rather than legislative control of state and central governments, end quote. This is the key, judicial and executive control. They feared the popular majority. They feared the mob. They wanted to put restraints on the voters. Their traditional view of their intention focuses on the political and the economic. They sought power and money, it is said. Thus, say their critics, the Constitutional Convention was a coup d'etat. Perhaps the most in interesting suggestion was made by a pair of historians whose 1961 article focused on the age differences among the leaders of both camps. The essay was reprinted by the American Histor Historical Associ Association in 1962 as a publication of its service center for teachers of history. Elkins and McKittrick had discovered that the anti-federalist leaders li listed by Jensen were on average 10 to 12 years older than the nationalist leaders. Of the nationalists, Washington was the oldest when the war broke out. He was 44. Six were under 35, and four were in their 20s. Almost half the nationalists had their careers launched during the Revolution. This was especially true of Madison and Hamilton. The careers of the anti-federalists were state-centered. Their careers had begun before the Revolution. The two authors concluded that the energy of the nationalists had much to do with their perception of a true national interest where they had first reached the limelight. The nationalists had the ambition and drive to overcome the less organized efforts of the anti-federalists. The question remains, how did they do it? How did they organize the convention, gain the Congress's post-convention acceptance of its own extinction, get the state legislatures to do the same, and then defeat the anti-federalists in the state ratifying conventions? There is reasonable evidence that, that anti-federalist sentiments were held by at least an equal number of citizens in 1788 as those favoring the Constitution's ratification. Was the victory of the Federalists due to better organization or a better case philosophically? In their preparation for a paradigm shift, those who are promoting the new paradigm constantly call attention to the fact that the existing paradigm cannot solve major empirical, factual, real-world problems. The defenders of the older paradigm cling to the old system, trying to show that the empirical problems raised by the critics are really not so threatening and are best solved by using the familiar terms of the older system. But as the incongruities between the new facts, meaning either newly observed, recently rediscovered, or newly emphasized facts, and the old paradigm continue to grow, and as, a young, as younger men tire of putting up with these anomalies, the next generation of leaders shifts its allegiance to the newer paradigm. The young men of the revolution produced this paradigm shift in 1787 and 88. The older political paradigm of the Trinitarian colonial charter was very nearly dead in 1787. Biblical covenantalism at the state level had steadily been replaced after 1776 by halfway covenantalism. Halfway covenantalism at the national level proved unable to survive the onslaught of apostate national covenantalism. The Federalists successfully portrayed the problems of the late 1780s as being of Christ crisis-level proportions, an argument denied by the defenders of the Articles from 1787 and 88 until the present. In the summer of 1787, most people agreed with the Anti-Federalists. There was little sense of the existence of a national crisis, let alone an unsolvable national crisis. The framers wanted to seize the moment, even if they had to invent it in order to seize it. There was a decided lack of leadership from Congress. Congress in some sense committed suicide by not calling a halt to the convention when the rule of secrecy was imposed in May. Some members of Congress sat in the convention. They did not rebel against the oath of secrecy. Clinton, Clinton Rossiter did not exaggerate in 1966 when he wrote, quote, Congress was already failing when the framers gave it their famous push, end quote. 
the old men of the revolution were losing their confidence. The Articles had required unanimity for the ratification of any amendment. This provision had delivered the destiny of the national government into the hands of Rhode Island, and Congress knew it. They knew that by 1787 that Article 8 was wrong when it stated that the Union shall be perpetual. But they did not know how simultaneously to escape both Rhode Island and the dissolution. There was a failure of both vision and nerve in Congress. The sanctioned representatives of real-world voters did not have sufficient confidence in their own offices to challenge the self-designated representatives of the metaphysical people. The magistrates in the halfway covenant could not muster sufficient drive to defend it successfully in the face of a more consistent apostate covenant. They had forgotten that God gives his covenanted men confidence only when they obey his revealed law. Thus they meekly acquiesced to the transfer of sovereignty that was going on illegally in their midst with the connivance of some of Congress's members. George Washington, in effect, stared them down from Philadelphia. The voters had not been, the voters had not been willing to require of their national representatives what most state, states required of, their, required of state representatives, an oath of allegiance to God and his Bible. The voters had been embarrassed by God. The framers were not embarrassed by him. They simply prohibited any public oath to him in their new covenant document. They regarded him as some sort of senile uncle who could be trotted out on holidays, counted on to make a toast or two, judicially non-binding, of course, and then be sent back to his retirement home. The Anti-Federalists were placed in an unenviable position of saying that there was a need for reform, but not a great need, and not a great reform. Also, they could not show how these reforms could be achieved legally, given the limitations imposed by the Articles. Limited reform on the basis of traditional foundations is always a difficult position to defend after decades of philosophical compromise with those who are pressing for ever greater social change in terms of ever greater philosophical consistency. The Anti-Federalists learned the truth of politics, quote, you can't beat something consistent if you don't offer anything specific, end quote. Philosophically and theologically, the Anti-Federalists could not and did not match the Federalists with respect to faithful conformity to the spirit of the age. They could not successfully appeal to the great overarching principle of Newtonian rational coherence, for such coherence pointed to universalism. Newton's lies applied to the whole universe, even including Rhode Island. In an age of growing universalism, the anti-federalists clung to particularism and localism. For example, they could not deal politically with the intercolonial economic problems that the Articles had not solved. Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations defended the world of free trade and open borders. But this is always a difficult idea to sell to tax-hungry politicians and local producers who face competition from imports. Smith's view, like that of Scottish rationalism, generally was systems-oriented, intellectually speaking. It was mechanical rather than organic. Smith had built a towering intellectual system in defense of free trade. He showed what should be done, the abolition of political restraints on trade. But he did not show how, to, how a confederation might achieve this by political means. The Federalists did. No more internal tariffs, no more provincial fiat money, no more begging for financial support. A national central government would compel economic decentralization. Thus, the Anti-Federalists could not beat something with nothing, i.e. demonstrate publicly how they could solve the fundamental weaknesses politically with quote, more of the same. 
The Federalists could appeal to the need for a new union that would abolish these internal restraints on trade. This was Madison's vision, political centralization for the sake of economic liberty and decentralization. Hamilton had other ideas, as he proved when he was Secretary of the Treasury, but this was not known to his colleagues in 1788. Madison even hoped for an international economic decentralization based on American force. He thought that a strong central government could coerce England into opening up the West Indian ports to U.S. Congress, commerce. America would compel the world to accept free trade. This was very far from the vision of the anti-federalists. A clean break. The Federalists also had made a nearly clean break with the halfway covenant articles. It took the Civil War and the 14th Amendment to complete it. The halfway covenant of the Articles was neither openly Christian nor openly secular. Colonial, social, and political thinkers had steadily abandoned biblical covenantalism for over a century. The lawyers had won political control, even in formerly Puritan New England. The preachers had grown muddled in offering specifics to colonial political leaders after the restoration of Charles II in 1660, and especially after King Philip's War, the Indian War, in 1675-76. to Step by step, Christian had, Christians had compromised with Newtonianism and deism, at least with respect to social theory. They had also been educated in, in the pagan classics. The Anti-Federalists referred in their pamphlets to ancient Rome, not ancient Israel. They had no principle of transcendence, no voice of authority. The Federalists did, the voice of the sovereign people. But it was not merely the intellectual case for apostate covenantalism that won the day. Traditionalism always dies hard. It was also a question of better political organization. If the Federalists were better organized, as they surely were, then what was the basis of this better organization? What was the source of this of the cooperation these leaders received from so many and others so many others in the state conventions? Where did the common vision come from? These events were not random. Politics is not impersonal either, not the product of vast social forces. The issues of politics are organizational. What I argue is very different from what appears in any textbook on U.S. history. I argued that 1787 was indeed a coup d'etat, but this coup had a side to it that the history books refused to mention, religion. The Constitutional Convention was a successful attempt by a small group of men whose most influential leaders had long since rejected the doctrine of the Trinity. The voters were Christians. The, coven the Convention's leaders were what two decades later would be called Unitarians. They had imbibed their theology not from the creeds of the, na of the nation's churches, but from dissenting Whig political theory, Newtonian to the core, and from the secret rites of the Masonic lodges to which a dozen of them belonged, which was also Newtonian to the core. What the Constitutional Convention was all about was this, a national political transformation by a group of men who really believed in secrecy and oaths. That almost a quarter of them had taken Masonic self-maledictory oaths is at least worth considering when it comes to assessing their personal motivations. Trinitarian State Constitutions the colony state constitutions were explicitly religious. This was especially true of New England's constitutions. The old Puritan rigor was still visible at the outbreak of the Revolution. Vermont's 1777 constitution begins with the natural rights of man, section 1, goes to a defense of private property, section 2, and then sets forth the right of religious conscience, quote, regulated by the word of God, end quote. There is full religious freedom for anyone to worship any way he chooses, just so long as he is a Protestant. Quote, Nor can any man who professes the Protestant religion be deprived or abridged of any civil right as a citizen on account of his religious sentiment. End quote. 
The public authorities have no authorization to interfere with people's right of conscience. Nevertheless, quote, nevertheless, every sect or denomination of people ought to observe the Sabbath or the Lord's Day and keep up and support some sort of religious worship, which to them shall seem most agreeable and to the revealed will of God, end quote. The 1780 Massachusetts Constitution and the 1784 New Hampshire Constitution had almost identical passages requiring public worship. Section 1 of the Massachusetts documents affirms that, quote, all men are born free and equal and have natural, essential, and unalienable rights, end quote, and then lists men's lives, liberties, and property ownership. Section 2 says, quote, it is the right as well as the duty of all men in society publicly and at stated seasons to worship the supreme being, the Create creator and preserver of the universe. End quote. This sounds universalistic and even Masonic, but Section 3 establishes the right of the state to support the building of churches and the payment of ministers' salaries. All the denominations were placed on equal status. Section 3 ends with these words quote, And every denomination of Christians, demeaning themselves peaceably and as good subjects of the commonwealth, shall be equally under the, under the protection of the law. End quote. The same religious provisions are found in sections 1 through 4 of the New Hampshire Constitution, and, and section five, 6 represents verbatim the statement from Massachusetts Constitution, quote, and every denomination of Christians, end quote. In short, these state commonwealths were explicitly designated as Christian. The Virginia Constitution of 1776 was less specific. It affirmed freedom of conscience, and it recommended quote, Christian forbearance, love, and charity towards each other, end quote. Virginia had a state-supported church. Pennsylvania's 1776 Constitution specified that a man's civil rights could not be abridged if he, quote, acknowledges the being of a god, end quote. The test oath had been removed through the influence of Franklin. Delaware in 1776 was more theologically explicit, quote, that all persons professing the Christian religion ought forever to enjoy equal rights and privileges in this state, unless under color of religion any man disturb the peace, the happiness, or safety of society, end quote. Maryland's 1776 constitution was similar to Delaware's, quote, all persons professing the Christian religion are equally entitled to protection in their religious liberty. End quote. Furthermore, quote, the legislatures may, in their discretion, lay a general and equal tax for the support of the Christian religion. End quote. North Carolina re required an affirmation of the Protestant religion for office holders, subverting the state constitutions. The state con governments of most of the colonies, always excluding Rhode Island, combined legitimate Christian oaths and illegitimate state-financed churches. It was, one of the it was one of the great ironies of American history that Rhode Island served as the religious model of the constitutional settlement, yet it was this state's intransigence after 1783 in the area of commercial policy and its wave of paper money inflation in the mid-1780s that persuaded the flame framers to replace the Articles. Rhode Island refused to ratify the Constitution until 1790. It was the outcast of America in the 1780s as surely as it had been the outcast of Puritan New England in the 1640s and 1650s. The people of the colonial era recognized that an oath to God and an affirmation of the, Bi of the authority of the Bible were basic to the preservation of Christian social order, political freedom, and economic prosperity. What the colonialists did not fully understand is that God-given functions of civil government is inherently negative to impose sanctions against public evil. 
It is not the function of civil government to use coercively obtained tax money in order to promote supposedly positive causes. By using tax revenues to finance specific denominations, the state governments created ecclesiastical monopolies. This was a catastrophic area, error, one shared by the whole Western world from the beginning of the West. This error could have been solved by the Constitution's refusal to subsidize churches with direct economic grants of any kind. Instead, the Constitution created a secular humanist anti-Christian republic in the name of religious freedom. Tax money is used to subsidize this rival religious worldview in the name of religious neutrality. It was the legitimate hostile reaction of the various non-established Protestant churches to this misuse of tax revenues. Mead writes, quote, the struggles for religious freedom during the last quarter of the 18th century provided the kind of practical issue on which rationalists and sectarian pietists could and did unite, in spite of underlying theological differences in opposition to right-wing traditionalists. Tax-funded economic support of specific ecclesiastical groups led politically to the constitutional deconstruction of the explicitly Trinitarian judicial foundations of the United States. It created the political alliance between the Deists and Masons and dissenting churches. The federal example reminded men that national leaders were not bound by any Trinitarian oath. Why should state officers be similarly bound? The symbol of the oath was real. This covenantal example could not be ignored. The Deists who wrote this provision into the Constitution fully understood this. Their opponents were not equally alert. A century of Newtonian rationalism and an ancient heritage of Stoic natural law theory had blinded the opponents to the importance and inescapable nature of covenantal civil oaths. Freemasons had a definite goal, to make illegal at the national level the imposition of rival theocracies to their own. This put them at odds with the covenants of 12 of the 13 state constitutions, which they intended to subvert. Rushduni argued in 1973 that theocracy is judicially mandatory. Therefore, he concluded, there must not be toleration of non-Christian religions. Quote, the modern concept of total toleration is not a valid legal principle, but an advocacy of anarchism. Shall all religions be tolerated? But as we have seen, every religion is a concept of law order. Total toleration means total permissiveness for every kind of practice, idolatry, cannibalism, human sacrifice, perversion, and all things else. Such total toleration is neither possible nor desirable. And for a law order to forsake its self-protection is both wicked and suicidal. To tolerate subversion is itself a subversive activity, end quote. The toleration of religious subversion, it would be difficult to produce a more accurate, let's yet succinct description of the results of the Constitutional Convention from a biblical point of view. It was ex the explicitly Christian character of state constitutions that became the target of the delegates in Philadelphia. Franklin's Theology of Union Benjamin Franklin has been regarded as a conservative deist. He was not. When he died, a printed document was found in his pocket. He had carried it around with him for years. Quote, Articles of Belief, end quote. It was declared his... It declared his faith in the plurality of worlds, a widely held Renaissance doctrine. The universe is filled with many suns like ours and many worlds like ours, the document said. It also announced his idea that the, quote, infinite has created many beings or gods vastly superior to man. It may be the, that these created gods are immortal. 
Howbeit, I conceive that each of these is exceeding wise and good and very powerful, and that each has made for himself one glorious sun, attended with a beautiful and admirable system of planets. It is that particular wise and good God who is the author and owner of our system that I propose for the object of my praise and adoration. End quote. If he was anything theologically, he was a proto-Mormon. In 1734, he was appointed as Provincial Masonic Grand Master for the province of Pennsylvania. He had been seeking a high Masonic position for over a year. In 1754, Franklin had worked to create a national government. This took place at the Albany Convention. This was the first attempt at, national, at colonial national union. Some two dozen delegates from seven states attended. The goal was to create a defense system against the French who were challenging British expansion in the Ohio Valley. A committee of five men was appointed to draw upon a plan of union, and three were Masons, Hutchison of Massachusetts, Franklin, and Hopkins of Rhode Island. Franklin, on May 9, 1754, printed in his Pennsylvania Gazette a woodcut of a snake in eight pieces, labeled, Join or Die. Then he submitted his plan of union, writes Carter, quote, The plan provides for a president general to be appointed by the crown and for a grand council to be elected by the colonial assemblies. The identical plan of organizations of American provincial grand lodges at the time. Franklin left no hint that he used the Constitution of Freemasonry as a model for his Albany plan, but since he had published Anderson's Constitution in 1734 and had served as Grand Master of the Provincial Lodge of Pennsylvania also in 1734, there can be no doubt that he was familiar with the Masonic Constitution. The fact that he called the Council of the Representatives of the several colonies a Grand Council and that the Council of the Representatives of Masonic Lodges is called a Grand Lodge is circumstantial evidence that Masonry was influencing his thinking. Anderson's Constitutions What was Anderson's Constitutions? This was the organizational handbook of English speculative Freemasonry, or at least of the branch that became known by its opponents as the Moderns. A rival Masonic group formed in 1751 called themselves the Ancients or Antients. These men tended to be recruited from the non-elite members of society. Unlike the modern branch of speculative Freemasonry, the Ancients Organization Manual, the Ahiman Raison, was heavily dependent on Anderson's Sinstitutions. What was originally known as speculative Freemasonry, a distinguished as distinguished from the economic guild of professional Masons, grew out of the early Masons' guilds. Several Masons' guilds formed the premier Grand Lodge of London in 1717. Non-Masons joined it and immediately captured it. Within three years, the Grand Lodge became the heart of English speculative Freemasonry, meaning modern Freemasonry. James Anderson, a Presbyterian clergyman and genealogist, joined the premier Grand Lodge in 1720. He was also a fellow of the Royal Society, the prestigious scientific society, as was his Masonic colleague, Church of England clergyman and scientist John de Sigulaire. De Sigulaire had been handpicked by Newton to be the first experiment, experimental scientist of the Royal Society. The latter became the first paid public lecturer in science history. He had been inducted into the society in 1714. He and Anderson became the links between Newton, the Royal Society, and speculative Freemasonry. They were self-conscious agents of Newton. The Royal Society was not some loose association of scientists and philosophers in this era of British history. Newton ran the Royal Society with an iron fist, writes his biographer. 
Newton protected his disciples, advanced their careers, and in return demanded and received total obedience almost to a man. Dr. Lipson concurs, quote, Newton, whose philosophical naturalist Principia Mathematica epitomized the mathematical work of that century, lived long enough to welcome Anderson and Desilier to the fellowship of the Royal Society. Thus, the great intellectual revolution of the preceding century was telescoped in the Royal Society into the work of two generations, progenitors and heirs. Among their heirs was, were the founders of Freemasonry. Anderson wrote the supposedly anonymous Constitution of Freemasons in 1723. Freemasonry in London has been traced back by Masonic historians to at least the year 1620. There is a reference from a, six, a 1665 company record to the Old Charges or Gothic Constitutions, also known as the Book of the Constitutions of the Accepted Masons. A major change had begun to take place by the time of the centralization of the lodges in 1717. As Masonic historian Joseph Fort Newton points out, in the Old Charges we read, The first charge is this, that you be true to God and, and Holy Church and use no error or heresy. Newton instructs his readers to hear... How, now the charge of 1723, meaning Anderson's constitutions. On this point, I agree with Newton. Pay close attention. Here is Anderson's charge. Quote, A mason is obliged by his tenure to obey the moral law, and if he rightly understands the art, he will never be a stupid atheist nor an irreligious libertine. But though in ancient times masons were charged in every country to be of the religion of that country or nation, whatever it was, Yet it is now thought more expedient only to oblige them to that religion in which all men agree, leaving their particular opinion to themselves, that is, to be good men and true, or men of honor and honesty, by whatever denomination or persuasion they may be distinguished, whereby masonry becomes the center of union and the means of, cons of consolating the true friendship among persons that must have remained at a perpetual distance." End quote. Universalism of the new position is obvious. This is an institutional manifestation of the ecumenical impulse of Newtonianism, which was Socinian and monotheistic. God, the architect, was necessarily was necessary to hold the original system, Newtonian system together. A belief in God, the architect, was also necessary to hold Freemasonry together. But like the God of Newton, this God of Freemasonry was, was not marked by attributes that are invisible to covenant-breaking rational men, unlike the God of the Bible. Thus, this Masonic God, universal in nature and manifest only through nature, is to replace man's less universal, less rational, less mathematical, more denominational God. We have in Freemasonry a manifestation of the Whig ideal of a world in which there is denominational equality through denominational irrelevance. Simultaneously, we have an incarnation of the Tory ideal of a world devoid of, of powerful centrifugal religious forces that lead to revelation and revolution and chaos. There is an institutional fusion of the one and the many, with unity provided by the common creed regarding an architectural deity manifested only in his physical handicraft, the God of Newton, and with diversity provided by the personally legitimate but masonically irrelevant creeds of the Lodge's members. This is the theological foundation of political pluralism. It is the revival of the Roman pantheon. All that is missing is political power. That, however, could be taken care of through careful organization outside the official meetings of the fraternity. Like Christians who conducted worship services generally devoid of politics, but who then met together for civic purposes after the worship service had formally ended, so were the Masons. 
These men agreed with the sentiments articulated by William Blackstone in his comments on the distinction between natural law and biblical revelation. It is man's ability to perceive clearly the stipulations of the civil law that supposedly determines which of the two laws is to be regarded as dominant for society. Blackstone said that biblical revelation is clearest to men, but if he really believed this, then he was John the Baptist crying in the 18th century Enlightenment wilderness. No one, especially the framers, took him seriously on this point. The Universalism of Freemasonry The Christian Church is trans-historical. It carries forward into eternity, Revelation 21. It is one in Jesus Christ. It is therefore inter international, but it has to the present failed to manifestly organizationally both its internationalism and a unified system of courts. It disputes, its disputes have repu repeatedly led to bloodshed. By 1700, these religious wars seemed unavoidable unless there was a change in national covenants. Therefore, a handful of enlightened men sought to base the civil order on something other than Christian religion. There are precedents for this enlightenment hope. The development of economic science in the late 17th century was a self-conscious att attempt to produce a scientific inquiry of society without any appeal to religion. A growing minority of educated men had begun a quest for principles of social order beyond the disputes of revealed religion. So had advocates of a new paganism, writes Jacob. Quote, in the early 18th century, the return to paganism, especially of an indigenous variety, seemed to offer a solution to the religious problems bequeathed by the English Revolution. Radicals in the 1690s who despised, desired a republican version of the Constitution, true religious toleration, social reform, a parliament ruled by gentlemen in the interest of the people, had to recognize that these, those goals had been rejected in 1660 at the Restoration, end quote. They asked themselves, why had the two English revolutions failed? Religious conflict concluded a ra radical minority. They concluded that what was needed was a program of reform based on a new, quote, religious consensus in a civil and universal religion, end quote. Freemasonry was the 18th century's institutional culmination of this quest. Freemasonry's principles, like its organizational structure, were highly portable, to use Dr. Lipson's terms. While I understand that readers have a tendency to skip over lengthy block quotations, I strongly suggest that this temptation be resisted at this point. Lipson writes, quote, The first problem on which Freemasonry worked was how a society with an established church could accommodate both a growing religious diversity and the rationalistic universalism that had attended the growth of the new sciences. The Masonic response was to provide was to provide a secret, arcane, pseudo-religion by developing an elaborate mythology and system of rituals for teaching moral values that Masons claimed were universal. The leaders were not unaware of the parallels of Masonry and religion. Churches, however, required uniformity over a wide range of beliefs and values from the immediate to the ultimate, while Masonry only required fidelity to a generally accepted system of moral values related to, the, to daily life. As Wellens Calcutt reminded his English and American readers in 1769 and 1772, respectively, in the implicit anti-clericalism that pervaded Freemasonic Free literature, the Church's interpretation of history was one of enmity and cruelty. Masonry, on the other hand, was a, was a system of morality based on the will of God and discoverable to us by the light of reason without the assistance of revelation. 
According to the constitutions, a Mason was obliged to obey the moral law or the religion in which all men agree, leaving their particular opinions to themselves, that is to be good men and true, or men of honor and honesty, by whatever denominations or persuasions they may be distinguished. Masonry was designed to encompass, encompass all religions, or as the ancients put it, the universal religion or the religions of nature, as the cement which unites men of the most different principles into one sacred band. Masonry expected expressed another kind of universalism, which was not religion, religious, but humanistic. End quote. Freemasonry is a rival religion to Christianity, universalist in scope, rationalist in ethics, and internationalist in its institutional goal. It is humanistic to the core. Silent majority, secret minority. I argue in this book that most of most Americans were Christians in the 18th century. During the American Revolution, especially through Masonic lodges in the army, a subtle change took place. A small but significant minority of the army adopted rival oaths to those of their churches. This new allegiance fused with a long tradition of Republican ideology that had been devised and promoted by the English Commonwealthmen, whose theological commitment was not always orthodox. This minority of free thinkers, or at least seriously compromised Christians, and the armed forces led to a political transformation of the nation, especially in a top national leadership in top national leadership positions. A minority could later subvert the American Christian Commonwealth, just as a minority did in Revolutionary Europe. This process of subversion has been going on for well over half a century, as Jacob says, referring to the career of John Tolan, a pantheist and a major figure of the Commonwealthmen. Jacob writes, quote, most significantly. English radicals like Toyland, Toland played an essential role in transmitting that originally English form of social behavior onto the continent. Decades before that process began in earnest, they laid roots that flourished in the period after 1730 when official Freemasonry, that is Masonic lodges affiliated with the Grand Lodge of London, took hold in various cities and towns. It now seems increasingly clear that from its earliest formation as an international culture, the social world of the radical enlightenment, although not necessarily all of its adherents, was Masonic. The milieu reveals a long historical culture where the connections between religion, national philosophy, and politics take on human reality. Where ideas about nature, social equality, the new science, as well as the Republican ideal produced a new kind of Euro European, few its number to be sure, who worshipped the natural world in a new temple and who found in the Brotherhood of the Lodge a private, secret ex expression of an egalitarianism that in the course of the 18th century became and remains to this day so vital to the program and ideals of the Western reformers. In purely demographic terms, during the 18th century, the Enlightenment had few adherents and the radical Enlightenment had still fewer. But in assessing the force or validity of reforming ideals then or, or now, it would be discouraging to rest one's faith or program on mathematical reckoning, end quote. By the outbreak of the revolution, there were about 200 lodges in the colonies. That was a significant number for any intercolonial association by the 1770s. By the time of the major constitutional convention, Freemasonry had become the major, if not the sole, intercolonial organization. When I presented this thesis in 1989, there was a considerable skepticism among my critics. Three years after my book appeared, one of the most influential historians of the Revolutionary Era, Gordon S. Wood, offered this assessment of Freemasonry's influence during the Revolution. Quote, the institution that best embodied these ideals of sociability 
and cosmopolitanism was Freemasonry. It would be difficult to exaggerate the importance of Masonry for the American Revolution. It not only created national icons that are still with us, it brought people together in new ways and helped fulfill the Republican dream of reorganizing social relationships. For thousands of Americans, it was a major means by which they participated directly in the Enlightenment. Freemasonry was a surrogate religion for an 18th for an enlightenment suspicious of traditional Christianity. It offered ritual, mystery, and congregativeness without the enthusiasm or sectarian bigotry of organized religion. Quote. New York Congressman Saul Bloom wrote a brief article in 1938 for the Masonic publication The New Age, quote, Masons in the Constitution, end quote. Bloom at the time was the Director General of the United States Constitutional Sequicentennial Commission. The government printing office in 1943 established the commission's 900-page volume, History of the Formation of the, of the Union Under the Constitution. Bloom was a 32nd-degree Mason, according to the article. In his article, he asserted that a majority of the founders of the American Revolution were Freemasons. This was an exaggeration, but his comments on Washington were not. He praised Washington as a man whose life was faithful to the teachings of the Masonic craft. The framers, he wrote, were practical men. From the political institutions in the states, the makers of the Constitution drew the bulk of the provisions which they adapted and utilized in perfecting their marvelous structure. When the time came for ratification, the doubts and fears of citizens were set at rest by showing them that the Constitution was made up of provisions which had already been used and tested in one state or another. But he ignored one obvious difference, the absence of the Trinitarian test oaths that were required to hold office in most states' constitutions. These test oaths the framers deliberately abandoned. In place of an affirmation of faith in, in the God of the Bible, the Constitution offered a new divinity, the people. Bloom wrote, quote, All these pillars rest upon an unmovable foundation, a foundation nothing other than the fixed will and affection of the people. They made it. It secures their liberty, end quote. He then raised the banner of Freemasonry. Quote, this is the most opportune time to make plain the noble part which Masonry has played in the making of the Constitution and in the history of the United States. We owe it to our ancient brethren to make known to this and coming generation what sacrifices they made, what labors they performed, and what triumphs they achieved. We owe it to future Masons to perpetuate the history of Masonry in, co in connection with the history of the country. A lively appreciation of what Masons have done will inspire Masons of today to defend the Constitution of the United States. End quote. Rival Covenant Masonry is self-consciously a parallel covenant to the Church. For example, Matthew 18.20 reads, quote, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. End quote. The following prayer is attached to the American edition of the Ahiman Rezon, quote, Most high and glorious Lord God, thou art the great architect of heaven and earth, who art the giver of all good gifts and graces, and hast promised that when two or three are gathered together in thy name, thou wilt be in the midst of them. In thy name we assemble and meet together, most humbly beseeching thee to bless us in all our undertakings, that we may know and serve thee right, that all our doings may tend to thy glory and the salvation of our souls, end quote. If this parallelism is the case, then Freemasonry ought to be structured in terms of the Bible's five-point covenant model. It is. 1. Transcendence, Presence First, Freemasonry began with the doctrine of the transcendent grand architect. This architect, however, was not the creedal god of the Bible, and therefore supposedly not the divisive god of either the Puritans or the Anglicans. This universalism or ecumenicism can be seen clearly in the Ahiman Rezon, the constitutional handbook of ancient Masonry. 
Quote, the world's great architect is our supreme master, and the unerring rule he has given us is that by which we work. Religious disputes are never suffered within the lodge, for as Masons we only pursue the universal religion or the religion of nature. This is the center which unites the most different principles in one sacred band and brings together those who were most distant from one another. End quote. This god was a kind of Kantian hypothesis that undergirds the phenomenal realm of mechanical and social cause and effect. He was as impersonal as a, math- as a mathematical formula. Freemasons regarded the knowledge of God and man to be essentially the same as the knowledge of geometry. God's manifestation in history is in his Masonic Brotherhood. Freemasons in fellowship manifest his presence. This quest for God's presence is why the pantheists could so easily capture existing Masonic lodges and adopt them for their own purposes. 2. Hierarchy Representation The theory of Masonic hierarchy was very much like that of Puritan Congregationalism, a structured assembly of moral equals with ranks in terms of ordination and function. A commoner outside the Masonic Hall could be elected Grand Master inside. Buck privates could rule generals. There was a hierarchy, but it was an officially egalitarian. It was officially open to all men, not just the elite. More to the point, masonry was a means by which average men could come into contact with the rich and famous. Unlike real-world churches, which officially possess an egalitarian worldview regarding its members, but whose members seldomly display it, masonry appeared to embody this originally Christian ideal expounded in the epistle of James, quote, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and good, goodly apparel, and there also in also come a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are becomes judge of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised them to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have tra- respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. James 2, 1-9 Masonry was like the early church in another respect. As in the church, Masons were forbidden to take the, the ma- other Masons to civil court until the lodge had first had heard the dispute. The early church's prohibition was total. 1 Corinthians 6, it was forbidden to take a brother into a civil court ruled over by non-Christians. The Masons' prohibition was partial. It was forbidden until the Masonic court appeals had been exhausted. The fact is, however, that the craft was divided by the mid-18th century between the ancients, lodges started a generation after the formation of London's Grand Lodge in 1717, and the original moderns, which the Grand Lodge itself called itself. Masonic historian Sidney Morse says that the ancients were often lodges of seafaring men. These men were excluded from membership in the Grand Lodge, connected lodges in Boston and Philadelphia because of their inferior social status, so they started lodges of their, of their own. The St. Andrew's Lodge of Boston, better known as the Green Dragon Tavern Lodge, was headed by Joseph Warm at the time of the Tea Party Affair. Another member was Paul Revere. It was an ancient lodge, begun in 1752, the year after the founding of the first ancient lodges in England. The St. Andrew's Lodge could not settle its continuing dispute with St. John's, the older Boston Lodge, which resented these upstarts. 
Only with the victory of the Americans in war and the severing of ties with the Grand Lodge did the original Lodge make peace. Thus, the age-old distinctions of status and wealth began to undermine the original egalitarian goal of Masonry. The fact that a single negative vote by a member could keep a proposed member out also indicates that the Lodge system was not all that egalitarian. The Masonic hierarchical structure was Gnostic. The Masonic degrees were, or rapidly became, official manifestations of a series of initiations into secret wisdom. The Gnosticism was inherent in its commitment to secrecy. In Ahiman Rezan, the constitutional documents of the ancients, we are told regarding secrecy, quote, The last quality and virtue I shall mention as an absolute requisite in those who would be Masons is that of secrecy. So great stress is laid upon this particular quality of virtue that is enforced among Masons under the strongest penalties and obligations, end quote. What was seemingly a vertical hierarchy was in fact concentric. This desire to be elevated into hierarchy by means of access to concentric degrees of illumination is the key to understanding Masonry and all other illuminist secret societies. Every covenant requires a priesthood. Whoever the elected Grand Master may be, the priests were those with higher knowledge who could select which of the brethren would be allowed to advance upward, i.e. inward. Masonry became an ideal recruiting ground for future revolutionaries. Masonry cloaks its operations by means of parties and convivality. Many of its own members do not suspect that it has ulterior motives, the main one being the substitution of a different cosmology from that taught by the Church. But the Gnostic organization of of its hierarchy, initiation into the inner circles, is what distinguishes Masonry from clubs. Masonry can easily become a recruiting ground for those who are willing to submit unconditionally to others on the basis of hidden hierarchies. Social societies inherently tend to promote institutional centralization and rigorous hierarchical obedience. Number three, ethics and law. Officially, law and Freemasonry meant Newtonian natural law, which is accessible to reason, a universal human attribute. Modern Freemasonry began as a cult of Newtonian science, in the words of Margaret Jacob. A Newtonian Newtonian scientist controlled Freemasonry in London. At least 25% of the members of the Royal Society were Freemasons in 1720 in the 1720s, during the period when the society was personally controlled by Newton. He died in 1727. The link between the Royal Society and Freemasonry goes back to the very origin of Scottish Freemasonry in England. The first man to be initiated into this ancient form of Freemasonry was Robert Moray on May 20, 1641. He was knighted by Charles I a year and a half later. His brother, William, became Master of Works, meaning Master of Operative Masons, immediately after the restoration of Charles II in 1660. Among Robert Murray's associates in the post-1660 period were scientists Christian Huygens and diarist Samuel Pepys. He was a patron of the Invisible College, pre-Royal Society. He was also one of the founders of the Royal Society. Huygens said Moray was its soul. He was the society's primary link to the king and its and his patronage. The Royal Society, the Royal Society's formal reason-based goal of an open scientific investigation would appear to be in conflict with the inescapable Gnostic impulse of Masonry. This is why so few scholars until Francis Yates made the connection. But the links had been there from the beginning. These links are essentially priestly. Mathematics and science, while officially democratic impulses, are in fact far closer to priestly efforts, with membership closed to those who do not understand the language of mathematics, just as the Pythagorean priesthood had been closed on this basis. There is an esoteric aspect of science that is not discussed by standard textbooks, 
The textbook accounts of the history of science. They do not cite Yeats' findings. Quote, the great mathematical and scientific thinkers of the 17th century have at the back of their minds Renaissance traditions of esoteric thinking, of mystical con continuity from Hebraic or Egyptian wisdom, or of that conflation of Moses with Hermes Trimestigus, which fascinated the Renaissance. These traditions survived across the period in secret societies, particularly Freemasonry. Hence, it is Hence, it is that we do not know the full content of the minds of early members of the Royal Society unless we take into account the esoteric influences from the Renaissance surviving in their background. Below or beyond their normal religious affiliations, they would see the grand architect of the universe as an all-embracing religious conception which included and encouraged the scientific urge to explore the architect's work. And this unspoken or secret esoteric background was a heritage from the Renaissance, from those traditions of Magaya and Kabbalah, of Hermetic and Hebraic mysticism, which underlay Renaissance Neoplatonism as fostered in the Italian Renaissance. End quote. The possession of the knowledge of the laws of mathematics had been one of the screening devices used by operational stonemasonry. Officially, ge officially, geometry was to serve a similar function in speculative Freemasonry, but the craft's rituals were officially substituted for the specialized knowledge of geometry and building materials. 18th century Freemasonry was tied to the legend of Hermes Trimegistus, the mythical teacher of the secret mathematical wisdom of ancient Egypt and Greece. Hermes was one of the gods of Renaissance Neoplatonism. Freemasonry had been esoteric from at least the 1690s, and the roots of this esotericism can be traced back to early 15th century. It was not sufficient for a mason to master mathematics and practical physics. A, mere, a more occult metaphysics was always present. Their rituals testify to this. Modern historians seldom take these rituals seriously. They take very few rituals seriously, perhaps, except perhaps a funeral, that most democratic of rituals. Ritual may have been fakery and fun at the level of the outer ring, but remove the rituals and you, and you disembowel masonry. Ritual is fundamental to establishing any secret society's boundaries. As the Godfather says in the movie, Peggy Sue Got Married, quote, Without the funny hats, there isn't any lodge, end quote. The hats are not funny, haha. They are funny peculiar. They are funny occult. Mathematics is a universal language, just as Latin was among educated men until the 1880s, when Harvard University began its pace-setting curriculum revision. There are two other such languages, music and international money. It was this quest for universal laws of nature and society that undergirded speculative Freemasonry. The, this quest included universal moral law. In the second edition of Anderson's Constitution, 1738, we read, quote, A mason is obliged by his tenure to observe the moral law as a true noikida. This, this word noikida did not appear in the first edition. In the Ahiman Rezon, which followed Anderson's lead word for word, though not comma for comma, we read, quote, A mason is also obliged by his tenure to observe the moral law as a true noachide. End quote. In a note to this particular word, we read, quote, Sons of Noah, the first name for Freemasons, end quote. The contributor encyclopedia of Freemasonry says that Anderson was not the inventor of the term. It first appeared, he says, in a letter sent by the Grand Lodge of England to the Grand Lodge of Calcutta in 1735. One, one 1877 example of the word appears in the Oxford English Dictionary, but only as an adjective, not a noun. A Noahide... A Noachide is the son of Noah who possesses the knowledge of geometry and also a common morality. 
Just as the Bible is not needed in order to grasp the logical principles of geometry, so it is not needed to grasp the principles of morality. The originally Masonic word, Noachite, was used by the translator of the medieval Jewish commentator, Rabbi Moses ben Maimon, Rambam, or Maimonides, to describe the Gentile sons of Noah. The Talmud's concept of the sons of Noah is even more hostile than masonry to the idea of the need for biblical revelation as the basis of civil law. The Gentile Noahide, according to at least some of the rabbis and Mahumides, is not supposed to study the Old Testament, especially Old Testament law. If he does, he is deserving of death. Quote, A heathen who busies himself with the study of the law deserves death. He should occupy himself with the study of the seven commandments only. So too, a heathen who keeps a day of rest, even if it be on a weekday, if he has set it apart as his Sabbath, is deserving of death. It is needless to say that he merits death if he makes a new festival for himself. The general principle is, none is permitted to introduce innovations into religion or devise new commandments. The heathen has the choice between becoming a true proselyte by accepting all the commandments and adhering to his own religion, neither adding to you nor subtracting anything from it. If, therefore, he occupies himself with the study of the law, or observes a day of rest, or makes any innovation, he is flogged or otherwise punished and advised that he is deserving of death, but he is not put to death. End quote. Sufficient social order within the Gentile world is supposedly achieved through the adherence to the seven commandments specifically given to the heathen, meaning Gentiles. Six of these laws were first given to Adam, according to, to Jewish law. The prohibitions against idolatry, blasphemy, murder, adultery, and robbery, plus the commandment to establish courts of justice. The seventh law was also supposedly given to Noah, the prohibition against eating the limb of a living animal. Beyond the minimal list of seven laws, the Gentiles, Noahides, or Noahites, the descendants of Noah, are not supposed to go in their inquiry into the ethical requirements of Old Testament law, which belongs exclusively to the Jews. And making this assertion, Maimonides was faithfully following the teaching of the Talmud. He was taking the rabbis at their word. Johanan said, A heathen who studies the Torah deserves death. For it is written, Moses commanded us a law for an inheritance. It is our inheritance, not theirs. Rush Lakish said that a Gentile who observes the Sabbath deserves death. The ethical goal of both Masonry and Talmudic Judaism is the same, to keep Gentiles from reading and applying Old Testament law in society. The traditions and legends are, are also similar, according to at least one favorable student of Masonry. Masonry defends at least defends a common ground non-revelational morality for all members. In this, it agrees entirely with rabbinic Judaism regarding Gentiles. What is remarkable is that the same idea of a common morality since Noah has been adopted by both modern Reformed theology and modern dispensationalism. This leaves Christians at the mercy of the wisdom of fallen men. By default, it puts the covenant breaker in charge of society. It implicitly denies that God brings his sanctions in history in terms of his Bible revealed law. This brings us to point four of the covenant model oaths, sanctions. Oath sanctions. Here we come to the heart of Masonry, the self maledictory oath. 
When circumcision is to the Jew what baptism is to the Christian, the oath is to the Mason. It is the screening ritual which allows a man access to the ritual meals and libations in Judaism, Passover, Christianity, Holy Communion, and Masonry's fraternal meals. Here is where the covenantal aspect of the Masonry becomes manifest. Of course, this is manifest only to the members of the craft. These oaths are not published. The Ahiman Rezon is in the section describing the proper means of initiating the apprentice refers cryptically to some other ceremonies that cannot be written. Masonic oaths call down judgment on those who would violate the secret terms of the covenant. But those inside the Brotherhood were promised positive sanctions, good connections, protection, and civil lawsuits. This is why the Masonic sign or password is supposed to open doors, and it does, and it sometimes does. The biblical view of the covenant oath is that only three institutions can lawfully compel them, church, state, and family. God has authorized only these three monopolies as his covenantal organizations. By requiring self-maledictory oaths for membership, Masonry has, its set, has set up itself as a rival church, and in 18th century France and in late 19th century Mexico as a rival state. In the words of Count Savioli, Brutus, a member of Weishaupt's Illuminati in the 18th century, quote, The order must possess the power of life and death in consequence of our oath, and with propriety for the, propriety for the same reason and by the same right that any government in the, in the world possesses it, for the order comes in their place, making them unnecessary, end quote. Succession Inheritance Finally, we come to point five of the covenant, continuity or inheritance. Here is where politics enters the picture. Those inside the organization are promised power outside the organization. Initiation and continued membership are the basis of this inheritance. Those who refuse to examine this conspiratorial side of secret societies miss the point. Those who see masonries as clubbery miss the point. Clubs are leisure-oriented. They are established for revelry and companionship. Secret societies are established to gain power. The goal of the secret society is analogous to the goal stated by Psalm 37.9, quote, For evildoers, evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth, end quote. Who will exercise political power in a democracy or a republic? Those who gain the support of those who can communicate with and mobilize the parties, the media, and then the voters. It is this aspect of masonry that can be of crucial importance. Those who have been sanctioned by the continuing brotherhood have a great advantage in the transfer of political power. The continuity of the Masonic order provides a means of access to political continuity, even though Masonry is officially non-political. It was non-political in 1776 or 1788 in America, and surely not non-political in 1789 in France. Rival Oaths the average Christian may not understand the importance of oaths, except those taken in marriages and to the national government. He does not understand the function of the oath in a secret society. Society. Some criminal secret societies, and even seemingly harmless secret societies, require their members to t invoke a self-maledictory oath. This is why they frequently refer to themselves as families. Freemasons are self-professed brothers, part of an international brotherhood. Therefore, Gra Theodore Grabner's book, Critical of Freemasonry, a treatise on Freemasonry, reports that Freemasons require the following oath of their apprentice Masons, a promise not to reveal any of the secrets of the craft. Kneeling in front of the Grand Master's pedestal, blindfolded with a noose placed symbolically around his neck, <clears throat> and the point of a compass pointed at his breast, he says, To all of this I most solemnly and sincerely promise and swear, with a firm and steadfast resolution to keep and perform the same without any equivocation, mental reservation, or secret evasion of mind, whatever, binding myself under no less a penalty <clears throat> than that of having my throat cut across, my tongue torn up by its roots, and buried in the rough sands of the sea at low water mark, 
where the tide ebbs and flows twice in 24 hours, should I ever knowingly or willingly violate this my solemn oath or obligation as entered apprentice mason so help me god and keep me steadfast in the due performance of the same End quote. a masonic third degree oath con <clears throat> contains quote, binding myself under no less a penalty than that of having my body severed in twain my bowels taken from thence and burned to ashes the ashes scattered to the four winds of heaven so that no more trace of remembrance may be had of so vile and perjured a wretch as i End quote. this imagery is straight out of the old testament's account of god's covenant with abraham the dividing of the animals and the appearance of the consuming sacred fire of god freemasons do not admit publicly that such oaths are required how could they the oaths are secret as the Encyclopedia of Freemasonry admits, quote, the conscientious Freemason labors under great disadvantage. He is at every step restrained by his honor from either denial or admission of his adversaries in relation to the mysteries of the craft. End quote. Everett Devell Jr. concludes, quote, These oaths are a direct breaking of the third commandment. They take God's name in vain by connecting his holy name with murder. End quote. He is too reserved. Taking such an oath involves violations of the third commandment other than merely linking God's name with murder. First, the concept of God's covenant in the Old Testament involved a severing of animal in two parts. The use of this imagery in an oath taken in a non-Christian secret society is illegitimate. Second, the oath is innately self-maledictory. It calls the judgment of man down upon oneself if one reveals the secrets of the society. Such a self-maledictory oath is legitimate only when making a covenant with one of God's three sovereign governments, family, church, and civil government. A separate kingdom. The Masonic leadership unquestionably has long recognized the self-maledictory nature of oaths taken before law courts. To the extent that Masonry comprises a self-proclaimed separate order or kingdom, the oaths sworn by initiates would have to be regarded by the hierarchy as comparable to oaths sworn before a civil magistrate. In fact, the Masonic oaths would have to supersede a civil oath, for the initiate is prohibited from revealing the details of his craft to the civil magistrate. The Mason, as an initiate, would face conflicting loyalties when called on by the civil magistrate to reveal details of his craft. Should he reveal secrets to the magistrate or remain faithful to his craft, if he, sh if he takes seriously the terminology of the reported oaths in Masonry, then there would be a strong temptation to refuse to testify and suffer the civil consequences, or else lie. We would expect to find that Masonic literature would publicly place all oaths on equal par. In secret, of course, this public neutrality would vanish. The key loyalty would have to be the guild. This publicly revealed position of equally binding oaths would tend to weaken the initiate's commitment to the civil magistrate, leaving him to worry about the vivid verbal terms of Masonry's self-maledictory oaths. What we find is just such as public neutrality concerning the equality of all oaths. The oath of the third degree Mason refers to refers to, quote, so vile and perjured as wretch as I, end quote. Using this as a guide, we can learn just how well Masonic leaders understood the close relationship between self-maledictory oaths and God's judgment. Under perjury, the Encyclopedia of Freemasonry declares, quote, <clears throat> In the municipal law, perjury is defined to be a willful false swearing to a material matter when an oath has been administered by lawful authority. The violation of vows or promissory oaths taken before one who is not legally authorized to administer them, that is to say, one who is not a magistrate, does not in law involve the crime of perjury. Such is the technical definition of the law, but the moral sense of mankind does not assent to such a doctrine, and considers perjury as the root of the word indicates, the doing of that which one has sworn not to do, or the omitting to do what is 
that which he has sworn to do. The old Romans seem to have taken a sensible view of the crime of perjury. Among them, oaths were not often administered, and in general, a promise made under oath had no more binding power in a court of justice than it would have had without the oath. False swearing was with them a matter of conscience, and the person who was guilty of it was responsible to the deity alone. The violation of a promise under oath, and of one not under such a form, was considered alike, and neither was more liable to human punishment than the other. But perjury was not deemed to be without any kind of punishment. Cicero expressed the Roman sentiment when he said, Perjuri poena divina exitium humana desidus. The divine punishment of perjury is destruction, the human infamy. Hence, every oath was accompanied by an, exe an, ex an execration or an appeal to God to punish the swearer should he falsify his oath. Freemasons look in this light on what is called the penalty. It is an invocation of God's vengeance on him who takes the vow should he ever violate it. Men's vengeance is confined to the contempt and infamy which the forswearer incurs. End quote. If the human penalty were merely contempt and infamy, then the perjurer would not fear for his property or life. On the other hand, those that are self-maledictory with respect to men as well as God are doubt doubly fearful. If Masons do, do take the oaths described by Grabner, then they have a human sword hanging over them, the, imit the imitation covenantal oath, whenever they are tempted to reveal the secret's mysteries. The language of the reported oaths is bloody, covenantally bloody. There is little doubt that Masonic leaders understand what an oath is, as distinguished from a contract, and they regard the verbal oaths of their members as oaths in the same way that a magistrate of a kingdom regards an oath in one of the kingdom's courts of law. An oath places a person under a sovereign, and this sovereign possesses power, at the very least, and presumably, a degree of authority, legitimacy. It is easy to understand why Orthodox Christianity has been hostile to secret societies over the years. A secret society sets up a rival kingdom with rival oaths and therefore rival gods. A Lawyer's Revolution Henry Steele Cominger has remarked that the Constitutional Convention, which has some claim to be the most original political institution of modern times, legalized revolution. This comes close to the mark, but not dead setter. What legalized revolution were the many conventions at the state level. These individual representative plebiscites sanctioned the coup in Philadelphia, and from that point on the revolution was secured. Not the original American revolution, but a lawyer's revolution. The problem with exposing the coup in Philadelphia is that it was a, such a successful coup. It was a coup that produced a true revolution. Berman regards the American Revolution as one of the as one of the six successful revolutions in Western history. To be a true revolution, he argues, a revolution must be a revolution in law, and it must survive more than a generation. Otherwise, it is just a coup. It must change the fundamental foundations of the political order. The American Revolution of 1776 to 1783 had done this. What took place in 1787 was not a continuation of the revolution against Great Britain. It was a second American Revolution. It violated the terms of the National Covenant of 1781. It also laid the judicial foundation for the violation of the state's covenants in 1861 and 1865, through 1865. It established a new civil legitimacy, meaning a new civil sovereignty. President Andrew Jackson invoked this legitimacy in 1832. Abraham Lincoln invoked it again in 1861, calling men to arms to uphold it. What transformed the coup in Philadelphia un into a revolution was the national plebiscite. It was a stroke of genius to appeal to the voters in statewide conventions rather than to existing legislatures. It was a stroke of providence that they succeeded in overcoming the one man who might have stopped them, Patrick Henry. 
Henry knew the whole strategy was illegal. At the Virginia Ratifying Convention, he introduced a motion to this effect, the need to consider the details of the original 1786 Annapolis Convention, which he had called for the convention at Philadelphia. This consideration would have reminded the attendees that the whole procedure at Philadelphia had been illegal. His motion, quote, that the act of assembly appointing deputies to meet at the at Annapolis to consult from some other states on the situation of the commerce of the United States, the act of assembly appointing deputies to meet at Philadelphia to revise the Articles of Confederation and other public papers relative thereto should be read, end quote. Edmund Pendleton, president of the convention, replied, quote, Mr. Chairman, we are not to consider whether the federal convention exceeded their powers. It strikes my mind that this ought not to influence our deliberations, end quote. Henry then withdrew the motion. But why? The central issue of ratification should have been whether the federal con- convention had exceeded its powers. This is the question of whether a coup had taken place. For all his eloquence at the ratifying convention after that monumental but seemingly inconsequential decision to withdraw his motion, Henry never again came close to winning over the Virginia Convention, one convention that the Nationalists had to win since it was a large state and the state in which so many of the framers lived. It was crucial to the framers symbolically. Once he agreed to let the Philadelphia Convention, with its plebiscite procedure, pass without criticism, the coup became a revolution. A Christian nation became judicially and covenantally a politically pluralist nation. The convention had broken covenant with Congress, which had delegated authority to it, and also with the Articles of Confederation, which had sanctioned Congress. Maryland's Luther Martin understood that the convention's appeal to the people in many conventions was itself an act of revolution against the existing Constitution. He also correctly perceived that this was an act of rebellion against God, the violation of a covenantal oath. Quote, Agreeably to the Articles of Confederation, entered into in the most solemn manner, and for the observance of which the state pledged themselves to each other, and called upon the Supreme Being as a witness and avenger between them, no alterations are to be made in those articles unless they, after they are approved by Congress, they are agreed to and ratified by the legislature of every state. But by the resolve of the convention, this constitution is not to be ratified by the legislatures of the respective states, but is to be submitted to conventions chosen by the people, and if ratified by them, is to be binding." This this resolve was opposed, among others, by the delegation of Maryland. Your delegates were of the opinion that, as the form of government proposed was, if adopted, must essentially to alter the constitution of this state. And as our constitution had pointed out a mode by which, and by which only, alterations were to be made therein, a convention of the people could not be called to agree and ratify the said form of government without a direct violation of our Constitution, which is the duty of every individual in this state to protect and support. End quote. Conclusion. The God of the Articles of Confederation was a halfway covenant God, just as the Articles were a halfway national civil covenant. The fear of this God was fading in the minds of the framers of 1787. He seemed unwilling to bring sanctions through Congress against organized covenant breakers. Rhode Island's mass inflation was one example. In the months prior to the convention, Daniel Shays and his armed followers in Massachusetts appeared to be even more threatening examples. Men must fear something. This is the basis of social order. The framers feared the weakness of the central government more than they feared the threat of centralized political power. A new God with new stipulations and new sanctions was necessary. The framers believed 
That God was a convenient metaphysical construct, the people. The monotheism of Newtonian natural law, as incorporated into the Masonic fraternity, had provided the model for the creation of, a na of national political polytheism. The great architect, through his covenantally faithful servants, had once again laid the cornerstone of another working model of the Tower of Babel. Quote by Patrick Henry, 1787. And here I would make this inquiry of those worthy characters who composed a part of the late federal convention. I am sure that they were fully impressed with the necessity of forming a great consolidated government instead of a confederation. That this is a consolidated government is demonstrably clear, and the danger of such a government is, to my mind, very striking. I had the highest veneration for those gentlemen, but, sir, give me leave to demand. What right had they to say, we the people? My political curiosity, exclusive of, exclusive of my anxious solicitude for the public welfare, leads me to ask who authorized them to speak the language of we the people instead of we the states? States are the characteristics of the in the soul of a confederation. I have the highest respect for those gentlemen who formed the convention, and were some of them not here, I would express some testimonial of esteem for them. America had, on former occasion, put the utmost confidence in them, a confidence which was well placed, and I am sure, sir, I would give up anything to them. I would cheerfully confide in them as my representatives. But, sir, on this great occasion, I would demand the cause of their conduct. The people gave them no power to use their name, that they exceeded their power is perfectly clear. It is, not more, it, it is not mere curiosity that actuates me. I wish to hear the real, actual, existing danger which should lead us to take those steps so dangerous in my conception. But, notwithstanding this, we are wandering on the great ocean of human affairs. I see no landmark to guide us. We are running we know not whither. Difference of opinion has gone to a degree of inflammatory resentment in different parts of the country, which has been occasioned by this perilous innovation. The federal convention ought to be, ought to have amended the old system. For this purpose, they were solely delegated. The object, the object of their mission extended to no other consideration. You must, therefore, forgive the solicitation of one unworthy member to know what danger could have arisen under the present confederation and what are the causes of this proposal to change our government. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.